0: last conversation with Dr. Corey Painter, we learned of challenges she faced when diagnosed with angiosarcoma and her efforts to create a more inclusive and resourceful community. Now as the Associate Director of Count Me In, Dr. Painter is using her lived experiences as a patient and scientist to bring people together. By creating public genomics databases of hundreds of thousands of cancer patients and their experiences, the hope is to bring this information to the world of biomedicine. Corey Painter is the Associate Director of Count Me In and a research scientist at the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard. Dr. Painter, welcome back. Thank you for joining us.
1: Thanks again for having me.
0: So um, I want to get into some of the recent work that you've been doing since you last came on the podcast. Um, But for listeners who didn't hear that first episode, or maybe didn't hear it recently, um, could you give a little background on the angiosarcoma project and your experience as a cancer survivor and how that led you to start that project?
1: Yeah, happy to. So I was diagnosed with this incredibly rare cancer called angiosarcoma, which is a cancer that starts in the lining of your blood vessels. Only about 300 people per year in the United States get this, so you can imagine how little data and knowledge there is about such a rare disease. When I was diagnosed, I was just about to get my PhD in biomedical sciences with a concentration in biochemistry, so I was already a scientist and actively engaged in trying to think through how could I use my scientific background in order to help people. And at the time, I thought I would do that by studying ALS. But I found this lump in my breast. And when it turned out to be angiosarcoma and I realized how far we had to go in order to understand anything about this disease, I realized I probably needed to shift my focus and try to see if there was anything I could bring to the table scientifically in order to help other people who were destined to have this have a better path forward than what I had in front of me, which was absolutely nothing. And there was no easy way for me to conceive of how I could forge that path. So I did a postdoc in cancer immunology. I thought maybe that could be a field of study that might converge with my type of cancer. And then I saw this opportunity at the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard, where they needed somebody who had a Past just like mine. And there's very few jobs that need to pass just like mine where you, you have to be a cancer patient, you have to understand the world of advocacy, which I did because I started a nonprofit with my friend, Lauren Ryan, who is also going through this, and who was a research scientist. And they wanted somebody that had all of this in their background so that they, they could be almost like a Rosetta Stone between patients and scientists. Working at that intersection so that they could directly engage and partner with patients in order to conduct very large-scale genomics research studies at a pace and speed that's never been done before.
0: And the nonprofit that you started with your friend—that was the Ar- Angiosarcoma Project, right? No, actually, oh. that was
1: that was a whole other adventure that's still going on. It's called Angiosarcoma Awareness Inc. and oh, it's right. um, mm-hmm. it's a nonprofit 501c3 just based on raising awareness and funds for angiosarcoma research and also travel assistance for angiosarcoma patients. So that's a separate thing. So while I was doing that as kind of a night job, as a day t- as my day job, I was still a scientist. Mm-hmm. And when I saw this opportunity at the Broad Institute, I jumped. And it was through launching several patient-partnered projects that I'm happy to talk about and the success that it garnered we were able to roll out a new nonprofit called Count Me In.
0: When you started at the Broad Institute, um and you were do you, you came on to start these patient-centered projects?
1: I did. Yeah, so they had been really exploring this idea very deeply before they brought me on. The the notion that we live in a moment of time where we have technology, we have drop in the price of sequencing people are interconnected in social media they have connections to each other in ways that just are unprecedented that didn't exist 10 15 years ago and if you could just figure out a way to tether all of that together that you would have very robust science on one side and patient inclusion on the other and so they had been talking about this for years Mm -hmm. and they were able to bring on a full-time employee to help them kind of conceive of this and help really build it and launch it. And that's, that's where I came in.
0: Right. So you were the person who had the scientific background and the personal experience to talk to both of those worlds.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yep.
0: Great. And so the project that you started, um, count me in, could you tell us more about that and what the goal of that is?
1: Sure. So we, the first project that I was brought in to start was the Metastatic Breast Cancer Project, which is still going to this day. And anybody can find it online at mbcproject.org. The project was launched in October of 2015. And to date has over 5,000 women and men who have signed in and said, count me in, I want to be part of this. We built this project in lockstep with dozens of patients and patient advocates that were willing to talk with us and kind of take a risk in the early days when there was nothing to point to. We had an idea. And the idea was that if we talk with you, somebody that has these experiences, will you guide us and tell us all the things that we should do in order to build a project around your experiences that will allow us to basically come be with you and Understand what it's like from your perspective, include your voice in the data that we're generating, include your face in many instances, and then couple all of that with genomic information and share it with the world so that we can hopefully inspire a lot of other people to take that data, use that data to their, own, um, to their own end, to generate their own hypotheses, to drive their own experiments, so that they also can um, publish on it, build clinical trials off of it, and hopefully accelerate the pace at which research is done.
0: So you mentioned the Metastatic Breast Cancer Project mm-hmm. and that as the springboard for yeah. Count Me In. Yeah. And um, as part of Count Me In, you're collecting genomic data, you're collecting samples and patient experiences. That's right. So could you tell us um, how exactly do you acquire that data? And, um, you know, once you, you mentioned the mbc.org, Ms. mbc project, project.org yeah. So once they go to the website, they click a button that says count me in, right. then what happens?
1: So they click the count me in and it brings them to an, a survey and the survey asks them general information about their experience with the disease. When were they diagnosed with breast cancer? When were they diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer? At any point, were they triple negative? At any point, did they were they hormone positive or HER2 positive? Um, we ask questions about um, a, a variety of different things with respect to their diagnosis of both breast and metastatic breast cancer. And then we ask, is there anything else you think we should know about your experience with the disease? If they submit this form, then we email them a online consent form, and it goes over the study in detail. It talks about what we're going to do, how we're going to do it, if there are risks, what they are, if there are benefits, what those are. And then it summarizes it once again, and there is an opt-in or opt-out to allow us to access portions of their stored leftover tumor samples. There's an opt-in or opt-out to allow us to send them a collection vial for a, a little bit of blood. And then we send them a saliva collection tube, as well as obtain copies of their medical records. From our end, if they've opted in to allow us to use tissue, we'll, re- we'll get their medical record first, and then we'll read through their procedures and whether there's resections or biopsies and make a list of how much tissue they may have available for research. And we're very conservative here. We never want to use a patient's clinical samples. We never want to exhaust their tissue. And so we make a list of the tissue that may be available for research, and then we'll request it directly from the institutes that are holding those tissues. We'll get it, We'll get the tissues in. They're sometimes in a block form. Sometimes they'll send us tissues that have already been cut into sections and put on slides. And those tissues are then subjected to genomic sequencing. We perform whole exome sequencing on their tumor tissue, as well as the samples that they provided through their saliva, which is their normal or germline DNA. And then we're able to look, what are the differences between the DNA that's in their tumor versus the DNA that is in their normal um, in, in their normal sample? And we can do that on a patient level and then aggregate all of that data along with the responses that they provided on their intake survey, as well as information we collect directly out of their medical record, will take away all the readily identifiable information. So, for example, instead of having like patient X, you know, with a birth date of December 21st, 1961, sixty everything will be relative to the date of their diagnosis. And so you don't know when they signed up for the project. You know how old they are, but you don't, maybe they signed up three years ago, maybe they signed up yesterday, so you never really know you know, who anybody is at any given time and all of their readily identifiable information is taken away. But the underlying experiences that they've had with the disease are available. So you can see things like, oh, this patient who was 61 when he or she were diagnosed was on this particular drug. And then they must have had some type of resistance to that that drug because now they're on a different drug and there is a biopsy right in the middle and we have the genomic information both from when they had their primary breast cancer and when they had to switch those drugs. A scientist could take that information and try to understand what happened. Was there something that led to a mutation in their, in their tumor that made them resistant to that drug? And can they identify that? That's like one p- potential type of question that scientists can ask just by downloading the data.
0: Hmm. And so you get the data directly from hospitals, from clinics?
1: We generate the data you... at the Broad Institute.
0: Okay, So um, we, yeah. how many patients do you, have you signed up so far?
1: For the Metastatic Breast Cancer Project, we've signed up over 5,000 women and men for the project, which is remarkable. And of those, you know, it, there's always going to be a lag time from when somebody signs up to when we can actually get through the entire pipeline to their data being up on. We, we house the data right now on Bio portal, which is a public um warehouse, basically, of genomic data out of Memorial Sloan-Kettering. Mm-hmm. Um, so the whole pipeline might take a year or two before we can go from patient signing up to their data actually being available for the research community. Um, that being said, we have over 250 clinically annotated samples that are already up in, in that domain that anybody can access on their phone or from their computer. You can look at it and use cBioPortal to do an analysis right there. Or you could download the data and do your own analysis. We're also housing the data in the genomic data commons, which is where raw files get stored. um, And there's a bigger barrier to access there. You have to be um, a research scientist with an ERA Commons user ID, and they have an access committee that will oversee sharing of that mm-hmm. data because it's a little bit more sensitive. Um, but the what's called somatic calls and variants, plus the um, data that's been stripped of the readily identifiable information, is up already.
0: Okay. So you have all this data available for people to look at. What mm-hmm. kind of research projects are happening with that data that you're making available?
1: So part of this is, it's the intriguing question, what are people doing with it? I can say that there's been over, within span of one year, after releasing the data, we talked with our friends down at Memorial Sloan Kettering, and they told us that over 80,000 people had looked at that data, and that it had been fully downloaded. So beyond just being able to kind of click through their user interface, you can download it, and it had been downloaded over 5,500 times. And so it's a little early in the process, since we just you know, it's it's not been more than a, a year or so since we've released the data from the first batch. And we every six months add to it and add to it and add to it in order to increase the robustness of this data. But we've seen hints of it starting to um, pop up. We went down to the San Antonio Breast Cancer Conference this past December, and there were several talks and posters where we saw the metastatic breast cancer data show, um, shown and highlighted as part of the analysis that different labs were doing in the space of genomics.
0: The things you're doing sound very labor-intensive. You're mm-hmm. You're taking a close look at what these people are saying in surveys yeah. and... Um, you're getting tumor samples and resecting them. You're, you know, you're doing a lot. Um, what are, what have been some challenges of growing this organization and just the, the intensity that you, um, the intensity of labor, um, and time that is required to do this kind of work?
1: It's a great question. It's a great set of questions. Um, so We started off with just the Metastatic Breast Cancer Project. And then we launched the Angiosarcoma Project out of the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard. We then launched the Metastatic Prostate Cancer Project. And then just this year, or just shortly after that, actually um, October of 2018, we launched the Esophageal and Stomach Cancer Project. And as we started launching these projects, and we realized this very thing, that this is labor-intensive, It's going to require an amazing team of mission-driven people to help see it through. We partnered with the Emerson Collective, Biden Cancer Initiative, and the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute to form our own nonprofit called Count Me In. And part of what we're doing is scaling everything, scaling Mm -hmm. the ability to build and launch these projects. So instead of having four projects, we want to have maybe over 20 projects, instead of having over 6,000 people who have said count me in across these different projects. We want over 100,000 people to say count me in and we want to build the largest freely available resource in the space of genomics to really drive our understanding throughout the entire biomedical community. To do that, it requires a lot of people and what we're doing part of the scale is hiring um, people that can conduct all of the different aspects of this from making the phone calls to request the tissue. To making sure that we have appropriate outreach into all communities, communities of people that um, have been reached out to traditionally, and also communities that have been largely left out of the research paradigm, underrepresented communities. We need people that can manage these projects. We need folks that can say at any given time, this these many saliva kits are out for this project, and we've received this many blood kits from this one. We need several types of managers, and so part of the Excitement, I would say, instead of the challenge has been growing this team and really nurturing it in a way where people have the mission front and center um, to help get them through the trudges of making phone call after phone call after phone call um, and realizing and recognizing who they're doing it for at all times. And I think everybody on our team absolutely does. We are visited by patients that are part of these projects routinely. We have their pictures, we have their testimonials that they send in with their saliva kits. Um, one woman sent me a picture of herself on her wedding day. It's so beautiful. And so she's there in her gown and that's um, hanging up pricelessly, you know, for people to be inspired by daily. People have their kids write pictures, draw pictures on the saliva kits, and the scientists that open them cut the tops of those boxes off and they hang them up on the walls. And so if you took a tour of the genomics platform at the Broad Institute, you would see a wall of decorated box tops. And these are from patients that have terminal illnesses that are so grateful for the opportunity to partner with a research institute and research scientists who care deeply about what, what it is that they're going through and to help make sure that the next generation they just don't have to go through the same thing that they're going through.
0: Yeah. I wonder, um, you talked about the traditionally represented communities and the underrepresented communities. Could you talk a little more about who those people are and, um, what the, what the, some of the issues have been getting underrepresented communities to be represented in this type of research.
1: Sure, absolutely. So if you look at who we have, um, if you went to public repository of genomic data, um, you might find information that would talk about people's demographics and associated information about their experience with cancer. It'd be very limited, but you can tell a little bit about who's in the data sets. Most of the people in the data sets that we have so far are white people. And so basically, if you're not white, you are in an underrepresented community that has not been accurately reflected in our knowledge base of genomics in the space of cancer, or probably really any type of genomics research. And this has absolutely detrimental impact on across the board. If you don't have people that are like you genomically, then the chances of having a drug developed that might impact you differently are much higher than they are if you are actually part of the genomic landscape of how we understand a disease. There's a lot of reasons I think why we don't have more inclusion and most of them can be traced directly to how we have treated people historically in um, our approach to medicine. And we're trying very hard through these projects and through our outreach to build trust. You know, I think before we can ask somebody to even join a project, we have a long road to hoe. We have to really... Um, develop individual relationships with people. We have to understand where people are coming from and that takes time and it takes effort. And I think we're just at the beginning um, and we're trying very hard to, to build out a team that is both conscientious of this and also really passionate about ensuring that we can listen more than anything else and then learn from what we're hearing and then move forward together.
0: Do you need to do? Is there a sense that you need to do more than just offering? Oh yeah. I mean, <laughs> like, how much, um, how much outreach, active, going out into these underrepresented communities, have you done, or are you thinking of doing?
1: It's a great question. We're just starting to pilot some of these initiatives, but we have, we have uh, a woman on our team whose full-time job is to think through this very question. Her name is Colleen Nguyen and she is very passionate about ensuring that she is talking with people who can basically help guide her toward an understanding of who it is she needs to talk with within different communities and then going and setting up conversations with them. She'll set up conversations with folks that are in um, communities of color. She'll set up conversations with folks that are in retirement homes you know, the elderly are often left out of these conversations as well. She'll set up conversations with um, communities of faith and talk with, and she talks with people. And then she tries to find other people that are fellow travelers to talk with her and to come join this, um, this movement. And I think, you know, it's just been really inspiring to all of us to listen to what Colleen is learning and to take her lead and understand that we it it really is going to take lots and lots of individual conversations before we can have larger conversations and that we have to have those larger conversations before we can just offer, you know, offer the research to people. You have to build the trust before you can, I mean, it's, it's offered already, but before you can kind of expect anybody to, to meet you halfway, you really have to go meet them halfway.
0: Through the process of building this organization and talking to so many patients, um, what have you learned or what surprised you, um, or maybe how have your beliefs or thoughts been confirmed by the things that you've talked to people about and the experiences of building out this organization?
1: It's a great, again, a great question. Um, there were several surprises, uh, for me going into this. Um, I am a patient. And so when I started this, i I came at this knowing enough to realize I'm not every patient, you know, I, and I I knew what it was like to have folks try to relate to me, even if they had had cancer. If they didn't have my cancer, it was different. And so I guess what surprised me was the fact that so many people just opened their their arms and their hearts and their minds to me and to the project and to our initiative so rapidly and readily. And it became very apparent the very first time I talked with this woman Beth Caldwell, who was a project or one of our first uh, project participants for the metastatic breast cancer project. I went into Twitter. I was not a tweeter at that time, but I went into Twitter. There is a, um, a hashtag called BCSM for breast cancer social media, and this group of people go weekly on Monday nights at nine nine o'clock. They'll have a Twitter chat about all things breast cancer. So I went there very deferential and said, hi, everybody. I I don't have breast cancer. I want to help people that do. I want to help people that have metastatic breast cancer. But to do that, I need to talk with some folks that have it. If you're willing to talk with me, please let me know. And Beth was one of the first people that was like, absolutely. And we set up a video chat so we get to know each other a little bit. And I popped up, And I saw her face, and I just was stunned that there was a a patient on the other side of this video that was willing to really go to bat for us. And I just said, thank you. And she looked at me with the same level of enthusiasm, and she said, thank you. And we both just sat there staring at each other (laughs) 10 or 15 seconds before either one of us could kind of muster the next sentence to come out. And it just became very apparent that she would do anything she could to move this forward, anything to make sure that she did whatever she could to see more research happen. And I guess the thing that was, it was a very pleasant kind of reaffirmation. Patients absolutely want to contribute. They want to leave a legacy, you know, and if they can't be cured, they want to make sure other people do. And we see that daily, we see that we see it with um, testimonials that people leave in social media on those boxes that they'll send back. And just by this, the sheer volume of people who are signing up that are clicking count me in, they're clicking count me in so that they can put an end to this.
0: What has been what's it been like to see uh to work with these patients as a patient, mm-hmm. former patient? Um do you consider yourself a oh, yeah. patient still? <laughs> Are you always a No,
1: I'm always I'm always going to be a patient. My I I will still always get scanned. They'll always mm-hmm. be Scares. It may come back and take me out in three weeks. So I never really consider myself out of the woods from this.
0: So, what is it like to work so closely with all of these fellow patients as you move this work forward and and start more projects for more different cancers? What is it like to work with those patients?
1: It is incredible, and it is incredibly motivating. Um, fills me with a sense of urgency every minute of every day. Um, it's very emotional, and it's wonderful.
0: Is there anything coming up on the horizon that you're really excited about? And yeah,
1: yeah. So um, we, you can visit the website at joincountmein.org mm-hmm. and learn a little bit more about the initiative. Like I mentioned, we, we hope to enroll 100,000 patients over the next couple of years. We're already working on the Brain Cancer Project and the Osteosarcoma Project. And we just want to continue to build and launch one after the other, both in common cancers and in rare cancers, and build a resource that will be a total game changer in this space.
0: Great, well, Dr. Painter, it was a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Next time on Think Research. That's what we're trying to do with this work, is we're trying to say, okay, well, what are the high value things we want to incentivize? And what are the low value things that we want to either get the price down, so we save money in the healthcare system, or say, hey, we're not willing to pay for this because that money could go somewhere else. Dr. Ankur Pandya of the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health discusses how cost-effectiveness analysis can improve health outcomes while reducing healthcare spending. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate us on iTunes and help us spread the word about the amazing research taking place across the Harvard community. To learn more about the guests on this episode, visit our website, catalyst.harvard.edu slash thinkresearch.